If you have a Bible, you can turn in Proverbs chapter 11. Continuing our reading through the book of Proverbs as we continue through the shorter catechism, we come to Proverbs chapter 11, verses 28 through 31. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon our time in his word tonight. God, grant to us, O Lord, the ears to hear uh, and the eyes to see. Our sin would make us blind and deaf, uh, dull of heart uh, to your word. Uh, But we rejoice that your word is living and active, uh, that it lays our hearts bare, that it pierces to the very heart. And that piercing, it does not leave in a dreadful condition, but builds up in life uh, by uh, placing us uh, in the arms of Christ. And so, even now, help us to receive uh, from our King, uh, who teaches us, and who by the wonderful ministration of the Spirit whom he poured out, um, enlightens our hearts and the knowledge of who you are, and continues to build us up and to grow us up into maturity, uh, ensuring that uh, we come into full possession of the inheritance which he has won for us. Make us attentive, O Lord, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing in the Shorter Catechism, you'll find questions 67 through 69 on page 973 of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. Uh, First, uh, a brief verse, uh, but it is indeed the very word of God. Lend your attention, this is God's word. You shall not murder. Thus ends God's word. And then question 67, uh, which is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. Question 68, what is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And then question 69, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto.
fear I've used this question before, but children, what's the best gift that your parents have ever given you? I'm not sure I was wrestling with that question. I'm not sure what my children would say. They're very fond of their stuffed animals. Uh, a number of the stuffed animals in our home bear names of congregants, which makes things confusing. Around bedtime, uh, when someone is asking for Mrs. Balkin, and I'm going to call her until I realize, no, it's the, rab the rabbit's name is Mrs. Balkin. <laughs> so they're particularly fond of those gifts, and that's charming. I'm sure you have your own answers. Maybe there's something, a book or a toy or something that comes to mind. But if you'll allow me to be just a little bit obvious, children, the right answer is uh, the best gift my parents ever gave me is me. <laughs> what I mean is they gave me life. Uh, life is the precondition for all other gifts, is it not? <laughs> There's no asking the question unless one has been given that fundamental gift of life. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which it's true that your parents gave you life, and it's not true that your parents gave you life. In a wonderful way, it is true that when we beget children, we give life. We create. We create someone in our image, as we learn from Scripture. We create someone who shares our nature. We create another human being, another real human being, and that's wonderful. And in doing this, we do something like God does as creator, who also gives life and who makes in his image, although differently. Perhaps we might consider the very high and wonderful doctrine of the Father eternally begetting the Son, where he communicates his own life ineffably, mysteriously, eternally, Father to Son. Aspiration of the Spirit, this communication of life uniquely at the heart of God. We could marvel at that. Perhaps we don't marvel at that enough. It truly is wonderful. We glimpse something like that. Notice I'm carefully choosing my words. Something like that. In, the own, in our own act and participation in creating. But we also know very much that our parents don't give us life in the strictest sense. Children, are you learning your children's catechism? Who made you? Who made you? God. And what else did God make? All things. In a uniquely wonderful way, God creates. In a uniquely wonderful way, God gives the gift of life according to his purpose, his design, his wisdom, his power, his goodness. Scripture invites us into this wonderful. Scripture tells us that each and every one of you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each and every one of you were particularly knit in the secret place of your mother's womb. This not by happenstance, but by God's providential care and wonderful 
mercy. He says that every hair on your head is known. He knows all your fingers, all your toes. He knows the shape of your heart. He knows the mysterious contour of your soul, for he is your creator. Perhaps we don't revel enough in the wonder that we're creatures. And in this blessed reality opens for us something of the goodness of the relationship to a creator, which in and of itself is commendable, though it is certainly stained by sin. So children, it is true that your parents did give you life. In fact, a bewilderingly specific line of human begetting lies behind each and every one of us with a staggering degree of particularity. But in the final analysis, you're alive as a specific act and gift of God. Every single one of you. None of you are an accident. You are here because God has given you life. And that seems to me the necessary starting point for the sixth commandment. A lot of people will start in Genesis 9-6, which I think is fitting to start in Genesis 9-6, but Genesis 9-6 doesn't even start in Genesis 9-6. Genesis 9-6 starts in Genesis 1-26, <laughs> where we meet the God of life who gives life. So let's consider the sixth commandment generally today and then with more specifics in at least one, if not two, Sundays that follow. So first, our God is the living God and the giver of life. Second, we are his image and thus protected by divine law. And third, we're called to preserve our lives and others. First, the living God and the gift of life. Genesis 1, it's a well-known passage. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Allow me to appeal to your general knowledge of Genesis 1 to usher us into something of a, a glimpse, a, a posture of wonder at the gift of life. Now, there's a unique delight in life in Genesis 1, isn't there? You get this sort of symphony of life. Not only do you get being, but you get life as well. There's this vast array of life. It's not just one kind of life. It's a variety of life. Scripture itself indicates that it's not just human beings who are alive. You can note that he addresses two portions of creation with this call to be fruitful and multiply, attuning us to a unique form of life that's going on even in the mind of Moses as he's writing Genesis 1, what the Spirit would have us grapple with. Plants are alive, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth. But they're alive in a different way than animals are alive. And indeed, they are alive in a different way than men are alive. And so there's this wonderful tapestry and variety of life on display. 
Now, I don't know what you think about the question of whether tigers ate animals in the garden, but you can note pretty plainly that death isn't a prominent feature in these presentations of creation. And so even if there's a good conversation to be had about whether the nature of lions was a product of the fall or whether there's something of God's terrible goodness on display in even giving the lion his prey, either way, none of those things come to the fore at the outset where there is a plain delight in the gift of life. That death is something which came about later, and that dreadfully so. And the reason why life is profiled as it is in all of its loveliness and in this vast array of different types of life form is because God is the living God. Perhaps we don't marvel enough just basking in the doctrine of God. What do we mean when we say that we confess the true and living God? Can you think back to doctrine of God? God hath all life in himself. God is the source of all life. God is life. The predication of God lives and man lives, God is living and man is living, while it communicates, is not fundamentally the same. God lives by virtue of who he is as God. We live utterly dependently non-necessarily, as important as you might be. If you were to die right now, the world wouldn't stop turning. There might be sad hearts, but there's a contingency, there's a a non-necessity, a non-essentiality that characterizes all of our lives. Not so with God. God is the true and living God. He hath all life in himself. He is the source of all life. But not only that, we see on display in his giving of life, the goodness of life. Jezar, if you don't know much about Genesis 1, you know that there is the refrain, and it was good. The gift of life, the order and the arrangement of life, all of it received God's benediction. It was good. Life is good. And it's that basic posture that God is the author of life, that God hath all life in and of himself, that who he is is life in a strange and wonderful and mysterious sense, and that he freely gives life to his creatures as a gift, not as a necessary extension of his being, but as a free gift, which he alone can impart as the one who hath all life, this properly arranges us to the very basic moral question of what are my obligations to life as a principle? Or more specifically, what are my obligations to human life uniquely? And unless we start with God gives life as a gift, then we're going to be terribly disadvantaged when it comes to answering that question. Because the starting point is we receive life and thus must honor it. 
Now, there's a sense in which everything we have is received from God. And thus we're to dispose of it or to use of it in a way that is in accord with his will. But there's something unique about life. There's something precious about the gift of life which sits uniquely guarded as a gift of God. So when we consider the gift of life, it is just that, a gift. We can marvel that this is our God. He is the God who has made himself known in the Lord Jesus Christ, who showed himself to have the power of life. Consider that, beloved, in all of its permutations. He raised people from the dead, beloved. Jesus did that even prior to his conquering of death on the third day. Death obeyed his word. But not just that, all of the variations of death which would have been linked to the concept of death, blindness, illness, disease, all of these things, they bowed to his word. He possessed life in and of himself. And in this, the father has made himself known not just in the grandeur of Genesis 1 with this cosmic symphony of bringing light forth and arranging the cosmos with all of its vastness, where the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars receive all of three words in the Hebrew. <laughs> it's more than that. <laughs> but he reveals himself in Jesus of Nazareth. the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, in whom was life. This is our God, beloved, who's majestic beyond comprehension and yet truly known in the face of Jesus Christ. But not only that, we're marked by the gift of life. When was the last time you thought of your life as a gift? Now, we can admit that Scripture complicates this. Certainly, you can read Ecclesiastes, and there is no shortage of acknowledgement that there is a certain painful perplexity that attends life that leads Solomon to say some things that are pretty striking. Mm -hmm. But we must be struck by, let's call it the tenacious testimony that life is a gift and that you have received it. Have you ever been struck by that? Like for all of life's difficulty, for all of its hardship, for all of its perplexity, people are loath to give it up. And even when they do give it up, it's not an easy thing to yield by any means. Doesn't that sort of indirectly testify to what Genesis 1 says so plainly? That life as such is a good because it's God's gift. You think of the Psalms and how frequently they find themselves near the gate of death and then there's this heartfelt plea to keep them in the land of the living. It wasn't because they didn't believe that 
was something for them beyond. It was because life itself was such a unique blessing, a unique gift, that it was worth clinging to and pleading with God to sustain. Beloved, you have been given a magnificent gift. You're alive. (laughs) And not just that, beloved, the life that God has given you has been the occasion for him to make known the magnitude of his mercy and his grace to you. For it's not just this biological life to which you cling. For we know that we all must go the way of death. And yet the magnitude of his glory is on display in that Christ has led the way through the gate of death and brings us forth into the eternal halls of glory. Such is the promise for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Mark the good gift of life, beloved. Mark its preciousness as a gift of God. And the Lord is pleased to guard this preciousness with very particular prescriptions. It's not to be taken. It's not ours to take. That's what the forbidden part brings forth. The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly. You'll find the Westminster Shorter Catechism appeal to Genesis 9, 6, which is a well-known passage. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Well, you get a sense that things have changed, haven't you? You hear the same language of the image of God, and indeed, the flood facilitates a sort of new creation, but it didn't change man's heart. The violence is still there. And that's the narrative trajectory that you have to come to terms with if you're to make sense of Genesis 9. What was the prescription in the beginning? Genesis 1, we read it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. What was the trajectory that opened up? Rebellion against God, the first murder, and then a trajectory, Lamech, the song of violence, and then a trajectory, Genesis 6. What's the indictment? What's the indictment that the Lord levies against the entirety of creation in Genesis 6.11? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with with violence, life, propagate life, create, fruitful, multiply, and the earth was filled with violence, bloodshed. It's really interesting, man and beast alike is indicted in Genesis 6, and interestingly, man and beast alike are brought into view in Genesis 9 both as potential takers of life. Now we can note again that to take an animal's life and to take a man's life are two different things. But it's striking that so precious is man's life, so precious is the image of God that even if an animal takes man's life, the animal is put to death, according to Genesis 9. Why? Because man is God's image and likeness. And God guards his image and his likeness uniquely. This is the basis of human dignity. 
this is the basis of the respect and the honor and the worth of every single human being. And mark where this comes. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. He has already said that the flood has not changed man's heart. That the inclination of his heart continues to be wickedness. And yet the dignity remains. And we can pause here and mark that we have a tendency to devalue according to our own assessment, do we not? That our preference is oftentimes the criteria by which someone is deemed worthy or unworthy of honor. And let's say more than that, our preference, our liking is deemed the ultimate criteria by which we evaluate whether or not I'm going to pursue the good of that person. God says you pursue the good of that person because in that person you glimpse something of the true and living God. Do we think like that? Not natively, I assure you. Not instinctively, I assure you. But that's the word of the Lord, is it not? We might go on to say, and this is perhaps a bit speculative, but the the residue of the image, the fact that the image was not lost demonstrates that man is still redeemable in a unique way. There were other creatures who fell, angels, irredeemable. But there is no human being who is irredeemable. Do we think that way? Man, that's crazy that we don't. It's just now dawning on me that we don't. <laughs> the absurdity that we don't think that way is highlighted in the fact that every single one of us experienced it personally <laughs> in that we were dead in our trespasses and sin and but for the mercy of God. There we would have remained redeemable. Beloved, he values his image still, even though it is marred, and he calls us to glimpse in our fellow human beings something of our God. And the immediate outworking of that is that their life is precious. And to take it is forbidden. But it's not just the forbidding of taking human life it's also the positive call to preserve human life and we're not to take the lives of others we're not to take our own lives because they're not ours ultimately they've been given to us they sit uniquely under god's authority as the one who alone can take life lawfully. Even here in the provision, you hear it, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It suggests that there are lawful occasions upon which man's life may be taken by man, but the circumstances are so specific. This is not man acting as a private individual. 
This is a judicial capacity that God has put in place in a fallen world that rests in the civil magistrate. That's what Paul says, is the magistrate doesn't bear the sword in vain. No individual bears the power of the sword. But even here, even in those lawful circumstances where life may be taken, and i got to confess, as I encountered this in a number of our Reformed pieces of literature, there was a certain cavalier nature with which particularly the provision of self-defense was talked about. It was like, well, we can take life when it comes to self-defense with a certain flippancy. It's like, man, you read that, and it's dreadful to take life, even in lawful cases. And that seems to be the thrust of it. Even in lawful cases where life is taken, it is dreadful. It is horrific. It is weighty. Because you're still ending the life of an image bearer. And you're acting in the capacity delegated lawfully, whether by providence in terms of station or providence in terms of circumstances, you're acting as God. That's weighty. You hear this. I mean, we get this way in our sort of moral ethical discussions where we're like clinging to all these provisios. We're like, yeah, but I can kill, right? It's like, dude, this is a taking a human life. This isn't hypothetical. We're talking about God's gift of life. This basic level. The dignity of life ensured for all. Not to be determined by preference or politic, but established in the creative order of God and the excellencies of his providence. But it's not just the protection of life, it's also the preservation. It's not just the forbidding of taking of life, it's also the advancement and the preservation of life, which is what 68 highlights. The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. It's interesting here, the divine sight, Ephesians 5, which is interesting. Ephesians 5, 29 through 30. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. All right, so from that they get... The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, the first thing to say here is, it's interesting that Christ reasons similarly or the law of God reasons similarly in the call to love one's neighbor as oneself. You hear similar thinking in those two passages. Is that clear? I'm, I'm making that connection. That there's a certain basic self-care, self-interest, those words have, again, been commandeered for purposes that are not as great as they should be but you can hear what he's saying there in that by virtue of god's created order by virtue of natural law that there's something good and right even about 
basic self-preservation and non-harm. And that same basic preference for life that sits at the heart of every individual extends beyond just care for self, but to those in whom, with whom we sit in relationship. Because where's Paul right here in his thinking? He's addressing the unique relationship of husbands and wives. And he's talking about the ridiculousness of cruel husbands. I mean, at just the basic level, it's absurd. Just the, cruel, the cruelty that a husband would show to his wife, Paul says, is equivalent to self-harm. It's a violation of natural order. So the man who harms his wife harms himself. That's bonkers. It shows that sin deranges at a fundamental level. A fundamental level. So he's saying that the same care, the same preservation of life, that natural law, that this order that God has put in place necessitates that we exercise towards the gift of life that we have received, we also extend to those with whom we stand in relationship. Now, is he saying we owe that only to a wife? Clearly, the divines don't think that. Right? If they're citing Ephesians 5 as scriptural evidence that we owe this same preserving care to all image bearers, clearly they see in this relationship a further significance. They see the same debt of preserving care that's owed to the self, owed to your family, owed to your church, by virtue of the relationship of covenant, union with Christ, and spiritual unity, and by virtue, no, and with the commonwealth, by virtue of our shared humanity. So this debt of preserving life, which God requires be extended to the self to our families, to our church, to our neighbors, is issued unto us by the God in whose image we are made as his good pleasure to govern the preciousness of that image such that any attack upon or a withholding from is actually an attack upon the Lord in whose image they're made. Mm -hmm. A withholding from the God in whose image they're made. And there's something really lovely about these verbs, nourish, cherish. The first one just means feed, to provide food. You could perhaps extend under that to provide for biological life, but he doesn't stop there. He also says cherish. The verb means literally to keep warm, but was quickly extended into a figurative direction to accurately communicate the comfort that a mother gives to a child or the tender care that a husband is to give to a wife. 
or supremely the mercy that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the astonishing underlying point that Paul is building upon here as he facilitates a glimpse into a mystery. And the unity that we share by virtue of that covenant bond in marriage, that unity that we share by virtue of our shared humanity with our neighbors is actually a lesser unity than the unity that Christ is pleased to enter into in that mystical union between him and us, facilitated by the Holy Spirit. And so in this call, we feel much of our failure, don't we? In terms of the nourishing, in terms of the cherishing, but in Christ we see its excellencies, do we not? For even now, though you may not like it, he's feeding you, feeding you on the truth of his word, feeding you on the truth of the state of your heart, feeding you on the truth of who he is as the true husband who cares for the bride, as the one who never extends that which is cruel, as the one who only ever acts in love towards the one whom he has purchased for himself. Beloved, the excellencies of the God of life are plainly on display and the excellencies of the God of eternal life are plainly on display in Jesus Christ giving his life for the bride such that she's cleansed from all of her violent ways. For we're forced to confess that in that indictment that the earth has been filled with violence. There is no little blood on our hands. As we look at our homes, as we look at our churches, as we look at our neighborhoods, our blood defiles. But the self-giving love of Christ, wherein his blood was shed, cleanses. And that is our need, beloved. And that is what God has extended unto us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for these gifts of life and eternal life. Thank you for your word which confronts us, Lord, in our propensity to disregard one another and to disregard your call upon us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who cleanses us from our ways and who teaches us even now. We pray, Father, that you would posture us and humble us as we grapple with your word and we earnestly seek the Christ who saves, that we may know you more, Father. For we ask in his name, amen.